This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back, everyone, to another interview for the New Books Network. This is the channel in media and communications, and I am your hostess with the mostest, Lee Pierce. I'm an assistant professor at a school up in Rochester where the weather is uh, just about spring today, so really excited about that and really excited to have you with me. I'm sure you are currently um, a little stir-crazy from being at home, so joining us for these book interviews is a great way to get a little company while you are staring out the window wondering when you can go outside again. So I'm excited to have with me today a book that just came out 2019, relatively new for us, Update Culture, that's Update Culture, and the Afterlife of Digital Writing by John R. Gallagher. And the book is published by University of Press of Colorado. So University Press of Colorado, and that is in 2019, as I mentioned. I'm excited to have John here today. We're going to talk about the book. We're going to talk about the internets, which I'm sure everyone is really tired of being on at the current moment. We're going to talk about writing and what writing looks like when it collides with digital technology, as well as a bunch of other really interesting concepts that I think are not only going to apply to people who are writers and teachers of writing, but also anyone who is, you know, like most of us, just immersed in the texts that circulate across the internet, across digital culture, and how I think our brains are still thinking of those the way we often think of print media or some of the media that we were grown up um, saturated by. But it's not exactly the same. It's also not exactly different. So really great perspective shift for anyone dealing with contemporary media culture. John, are you there? I'm here. How's it going? Awesome. Oh, it's going great. Thanks for asking. I'm excited to have you. The book is so good. I'm really thrilled to talk about it. I'm going to go ahead and kick it over to you. Tell us more about yourself, what's going on with you these days, how the book came to be, and just kind of what you're really excited about when people pick up a copy of Update Culture for them to learn. Sure. Well, I hope listeners are hanging in there. It's a little stir-crazy for everybody. Uh, I know I've certainly been going a little stir-crazy, sort of been stuck in my house and in my yard with my kids and stuff like that. So I am an assistant professor here at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, where it is still cold and it is always flat. So, yes, and oh, so flat. <laughs> so flat. And lots of cornfields, too. I feel like I live on a prairie sort of out of a book from the 1800s. So I am an assistant professor of English and technical writing at the university, and I teach courses in uh, digital media, digital writing, digital composition as well as uh, some science writing and some technical writing. I also taught a course recently on digital branding and how to develop a digital brand. And that course actually was based off of a lot of my research from the book, as well as uh, some more, some of the anecdotes and some personal experiences that I've had of, of doing the book and putting it together. Oh, that's cool. Do you, do, are you going to teach that digital branding course again? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm teaching it next spring. So spring of can 2021. I, can- can I audit it? <laughs> sure. Yeah. It's pretty good. No, we, we actually did some pretty cool concepts that are 
academic related, but they're actually pretty broadly applicable. So there's one activity that I think listeners would be interested in. Students came up with social media campaign concept pitches. Um, so, you know, people have always done pitches for advertising and marketing. But one of the things that people do now in the workplace is they come up with uh, campaign concepts for social media and they come up with like five or six of them. And then they try to uh, sort of pitch them to their boss and students come up with sort of those five or six pitches. So, you know, they might come up with a meme concept. They might come up with sort of a particular set of platforms that they want to use, create the create the documents and all that stuff. That's it's awesome. A pretty good I course. I'm yeah, I'm increasingly teaching students more about pitching because it's it's I can't much like grant writing. I have not had experience doing it. And I'm finding the more and more I want to get into public thought leadership, the more and more it depends on my pitch. And I do not have that skill set. So that's very cool. You're doing that. Yeah, it's it's fun, too, because it it makes you realize that not all ideas you have are going to be the best. And so it's not just about coming up with one idea. It's about coming up with like three, four or five. And the idea is not the idea till it comes out of your mouth, right? So you can have the greatest idea ever in your head because, of course, it sounds good in your head. Your brain is allowing you to get away with all kinds of connections that aren't really there. And then when you try to get it out of your mouth about why it's so good, you realize you don't actually know. Yeah. That's what yeah. my students always find. They're like, well, it sounded so good in my head. I said, yeah, that's why we need words because when mm-hmm. it's in your head, it, sounds, it always sounds better up there. At least in yeah, in my my head in particular. Sometimes I have ideas and I go, "Ooh, that wasn't that wasn't too good." When I start writing it out. <laughs> yeah. So how did you get from uh, from that kind of um, background, sort of like with the the teaching activity, into working on update culture? Yeah. So I mean, I'm in a, I'm in a field of writing studies, which is oftentimes housed in English departments, but it's very communications based, and we basically study writing and we teach writing. Um, so we teach first year writing, we teach advanced composition at various courses. We also teach graduate students. And one of the things that we have long focused on is the process of writing. So, you know, writing is not just a noun. It's not just a book. It's also the activity you engage in to write that book or in to write an essay or whatever it happens to be. Um, and in my research, you know, I've I've been focused on sort of the writing process, but a lot of times the way we conceive of that process is once you finish a book or once you finished an essay or once you finish, you know, your blog post or whatever it happens to be, you're in traditional sort of academic thought or traditional writing processes, you're kind of done because it's ended. But what I found in my study of digital media, uh, my study of Redditors, Amazon reviewers, professional journalists, as well as amateur journalists, bloggers as well, that the writing process doesn't actually stop. So what it means to be a writer in the 21st century. It means a lot more to be a writer than just writing. So you have to manage your social media accounts. You have to come on to podcasts to talk about the book that you wrote. You have to do all sorts of these uh, various kinds of heterogeneous activities uh, to actually be a writer. And the example I use in the book of sort of a historical example of this, that's sort of a non-social media example, is that uh, novelists always went on book tours where they were trying to sell their books. Um, They went on speaking tours and things like that. And so social media isn't doing anything like radically new, but rather what it's doing is it's making all the responsibilities of a writer more heterogeneous. So what it means to be a writer is a, is a much grander and a much broader range of activities. So one, one very easy example I point to in the book is that, you know, a lot of times if you're, if you're a writer of books, you never really had to time the book. 
Well, when you write a blog post, you really want to try to find a good time to share the blog. Or if you tweet something, you want to find a good time to tweet it. Basically, I make the argument in the book that when you are a writer in the 21st century, there's a lot of things you do after you finish writing that are actually part of being a writer. That sounds sort of paradoxical. That's the main premise of the book. And then I trace out all the implications of that in the data chapters of the book. Yeah, we're going to talk about timing. And I'm really excited to have that conversation because timing is such a thorny concept anyway. And then when you get into this, this idea of like what we call like the news peg or that like it, it intersects with, with attention too. So this is going to be a great conversation. And like I said, I think what's really cool about this book, so I'm an academic, I'm also what I call an aspiring public thought leader, because I think you actually have to like do public thought leadership before you can call yourself a public thought leader. Um, mm-hmm. And also I was in, you know, I was in business for a long time before I returned. And one of the things we always talk about in that is like branding and when is the right time to put the message out there and why do some things get picked up and others? And how do you, how do you think of your message as having like a very long lifespan instead of just being the one time that the words appear on the page? And so I think really anybody listening could find something in this book that relates to them, even if they're not an academic. So I actually intentionally wrote it like that. I wrote it to be uh, engaging and to not be too academified. I don't know if that's a word. Too, we would say jargon, probably. Not. I think academic. I think academified is fine. I like a good I mean, neologism. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the one of the issues that I always run into is that there's a lot of citation in a lot of academic books, and those citations sometimes get in the way of reading. And so, you know, the first couple of chapters of the book have quite a bit of citation. But the data chapters don't have as much citation. And that was sort of intentional. I foreground. So, you know, if listeners, if you're going to read the book, the first, you know, 10% of each chapter has citations. Then after that, I get into the data. And I intentionally wrote the book like that so that students, both undergrads and grad students could access the book so that people from different fields could access the book as well. I wrote it with an eye. Um, not just for writing studies and communication scholars, but also media scholars, marketing researchers, advertising, sort of aspiring advertisers, that sort of thing. Um, it's sort of meant for a broad range of audiences, even though it does draw a lot on uh, the scholars from my own particular subfield. Have you thought about releasing this as an audiobook? I have, actually. And one of the reasons why I haven't done it yet is because I have two young children at home. And so... Well, the- I yeah, well, the other thing I was, things. well, yeah, and I'm not criticizing you, um, but I, it, it, it was to your point about citationality because this is the kind of book that I think would be really well received as an audio book. But of course, what what that brings up to point is like, okay, well, how what do I do with all these citations? Because people, you you think people have people have a lot more of an attention span because they can sort of gloss the citations when they read, but in an audio book, we're all at your mercy. And so I do some adaptation of work for audio book purposes, mostly textbooks. And it's always a challenge to get people to realize like the citations are doing you more harm. I know, I know we're taught that like citation, citation, citation. And yes, that is true. But there's a difference between citation sort of through the background and then foregrounding that citation, which you really can't do the same way in an audiobook you can do in a book. So it's to your point that, that you really have to think about the politics of citation and what you're really gaining from that versus what you lose. And it's not always a bad thing or like irresponsible mm, or uneducated mm-hmm. or whatever. To just pull the citations out and put them more in some kind of like appendix for the purpose of being conversational and readable and engaging to the person listening. So I think audiobooks are a place where we really see your struggle with citation um, being very like really appreciate what you did in this book, which was exactly right. Prove you've done your research, prove that there's facts and evidence to back up what you're saying. 
but then get into the fun part, which is mm-hmm. writing for a reader. And I thought yeah. you did that brilliantly without detracting from the substance of the argument. That makes sense. So in terms of an audiobook, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, in terms of an audiobook, I actually have thought about this at great length and would like to do it. I don't know if I could read the audiobook because I don't know if I have that mm-hmm. much talent. <laughs> I listen to I listen to a lot of audiobooks. So the melodious uh, sounds of people's voices, I sort of am jealous of. I have sort of a, yeah. a Yankee voice. But the, to your point about citation, I think that would be, I think you'd almost have to rewrite the book so that it could be readable, particularly because there are some long passages and some long exchanges between yeah. myself mm-hmm. and the participants in it. Some, I actually tried including a lot of sort of long interview passages so that people could better, could get a better understanding of sort of the conversational nature of the book. Um, and I don't know if I actually said this earlier in the interview, but the book draws on 40 case studies of writers. Um, each writer was interviewed at least once and mo- almost all of them were interviewed uh, at least two times and several of them were interviewed three times. So I really got to know these people, you know, redditors, journalists, Amazon reviewers, basically people who had audiences and were trying to communicate with them and sort of contend with them, sort of wrestle with them. I bring up the audiobook primarily because I think when when you're talking about the life of a digital book and how that's kind of the the next phase of this particular manuscript, I think in addition to sort of circulating it like you are now, it's cool to see how some of the things that you could do when you thought of it as just a book don't work as well mm-hmm. when you think mm-hmm. of it as a what do you as a, as a circulating text. I'm not sure what language you like there for that concept. Yeah, but. that's a great question, and I think that's it's one of the questions that the book tries to wrestle with is what do we call it. You know, yeah. is it still, mm-hmm. what do we what do we call it when it enters into sort of on the internets, and what does it do when it enters circulation? <laughs> so, for instance, you know, when you had a physical book, you know, you could you could see it, you could hold it, and you know, you could you could pass it to people, so it could a book could circulate like that. But what does it mean when blog posts can be shared in several places at the same time? Right, somebody could share it on Facebook, somebody could share it on their own blog. They could then do like a YouTube channel of it with like, you know, a video of it. So, I mean, like, and it's all kind of the same, the same concept, but it's sort of being circulated across these different platforms. And it it does, it does even push on the very nature of like what writing is. And if I had written this, you know, maybe if I was starting to do the research now in 2020, I might actually, I might actually just call it content production. Because I think that the non-academic version of this book is something like how to be an influencer without being a jerk. Or something along the lines of like how to be a power user on the internet, something along those lines. Yeah, and I've heard people push back against the word content. I'll have to send you some links because I'm sort of persuaded by that. But but I think that's really close. Agreed. Um, yeah. But in, any, but in any case, once we figure out the word for this thing, <laughs> this thing that 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 was you know that that was a book in one life and is now like a, a not 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 a book, but also like it's it's a it's a reassemblage on across the internet. Also. A remix is what uh, Lawrence. Um, oh, I can't. He's a really famous Creative Commons guy, but um, he calls Lessing? it. He calls it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Lawrence Lessing. He mm-hmm. calls it a a remix, right? So whether yeah. it's a book that goes on the internet or whether it's a, a like like you you use the example of the Obama image, the really famous Obama image that even now I still see showing up. They showed it on this stupid tween show I watch, but they had her running for office and that oh, that and she was in that famous Obama image, and it's just so interesting that more than ten years later. That could still be resonating with eighteen-year-olds. Well, and you know, and and there's a uh, in, in my field, there's a very famous, we're very well-known scholar named Lori Grees, and she wrote a book about how that Obama Hope image changed, um, and sort of sort of like documenting all the various iterations of that Obama Hope photo. But what's interesting to me, and my book makes this point, is that 
you know, it's not just about that image changing. It's also about who is changing it and why they're changing it right? Uh, mm-hmm. and how they're changing it and all of the various kinds of steps and little sort of like micro details and micro processes mm-hmm. that they're engaging in in order to remix it, in order to do it. And so part of my book is that these images aren't just remixing on their own, right? It's like, mm-hmm. you know, it's you know, memes just don't, don't, just don't emerge onto the internet ex nihilo, right? Out of nothing. Um, there yeah. are people doing that work and there, that work is really hard and that work is really time consuming. So for instance, right, I, I interviewed a lot of Redditors who, t- who were trying to well, get you, um Will you tell people what a Redditor is in case they don't know? Because yes, I would, I would imagine a there's point. a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Some people mm-hmm. just are not going to be Reddit people. Yeah, so Reddit is, Reddit is a, I would say, a discussion forum. Um, it's got a very peculiar uh, interface. So it looks sort of like, you know, the crappy internet. And Reddit is basically a place where you post and have discussions. And Reddit has some terrible aspects to it, but it also has some really cool aspects to it. Um, I sort of think of it as, I don't really think of it as a good or bad because there's so many different forums you can visit uh, that it's both good and bad at the same time. And so I interviewed a lot of people who had accrued a lot of attention on this website and this, you get upvotes on this website and upvote is basically a karma point. And think of that as like a like on Facebook or a like on Twitter or some sort of like metric on the internet. And the people who I interviewed had a lot of it, like millions and millions of points. So they had kind of won the internet quote unquote. <laughs> um, and then some of them even said like, I'm trying to win the internet. I don't know what that actually means. You know, it's like imaginary internet points is what they call it. Um, um, my brother is a Redditor and he constantly sends me these memes he'll make. And he's like, this only got 687 upvotes. And I'm like, I don't know what you want from me. I can't Here, yeah. I validate you. You validated. Cool. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah. No, when you were reading this, I thought about him the whole time. Cause he is one of these aspiring. I just want to get, I just want to get 10,000 upvotes. I was like, well, you know, whatever floats your boat, dude. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the, the Redditors do a lot of different things on the internet and they, they engage in a lot of different kinds of processes. And so, you know, if something gets popular on Reddit, you know, somebody might've made a meme or something, but people kind of forget about the person behind it. And they just think, Oh, it's this image or it's this meme or it's a TikTok video or whatever. And a lot of effort and a lot of different things went into making that, you know, a lot of editing time, a lot of content production, um, you know, YouTubers now spend a lot of like their whole full-time jobs are making videos. And so my book is trying to capture that labor. Certainly. I mean, I haven't foregrounded the labor too much in the book, but it's labor. Right. And also yeah. all the different things you do to get to be successful on the Internet. Um, mm-hmm. That's kind of the main point. Well, and this but, gets us to sort of the, the meat of the book, which are these this timing, attention and management. Mm-hmm. Uh, which which is funny because it forms the acronym uh, the acronym TAM which I'm a I, I study syntax and so in syntax we have we also have a TAM acronym acronym except it stands for tense aspect and mood those are the three ways we we ad- adjust for time and language oh cool so I thought I thought that was sort of cool how you stumbled on that same acronym talking about something that's sort of different but not unrelated but which is like what are we talking about when we talk about something circulating and and getting upvoted and getting taken up? I mean, historically that just meant I write book, I publish book, person reads book, right? That's it. Timing, attention, management. And now we're talking about just such a multifaceted nebulous set of concepts. So this would be a great time to hop into that unless you first want to touch on um, 
template rhetoric. I didn't know if you wanted to revisit that concept or not. Yeah. So template rhetoric is basically this idea that um, one of the reasons why we're able to have an afterlife, right? One of the reasons why people have the ability to do all of these things after they write um, is because people don't have to design their own websites. People don't have to engage in computer code or anything. They can just use templates. Think of a template here as like WordPress, um, but you can also think about template here as Facebook's website or Twitter's website, right? I can get started on Twitter within five minutes. Um, I don't have to build my site myself. Right. And so same thing with podcasts. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's it's really sort of a, a distinct advantage to sort of being able to use these things. And it's, you know, there are some problems that have come up with the sort of the the heavy use of templates, right? You sort of you're constrained in your design. You can't make as many choices as you want. You know, you might have to choose a particular color scheme, right? Like Facebook is blue. But the one of the distinct sort of the distinct features of template rhetoric is that they call us as users to consistently write over and over again. So one of the examples I use in the book is that when you enter a status update in Twitter or Facebook, you enter a tweet or a status, you hit enter, and it is sent off into the onto the platform. And then you're immediately confronted again with an empty template field where you can send out another tweet, where you can send out another Facebook post. And so that causes us, that repetition there uh, causes us to mm-hmm. sort of um, monitor our own texts and monitor the websites for new content, so to speak. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, template rhetoric is basically my way of saying like, it's, you know, these things don't just come up on their own or come into being on their own. We actually have a lot of different uh, technologies that are doing this to us. And the technologies are helping us to really sort of write in a scaled up way and contend with update culture. That makes sense. Well, and I and I think one of the things, yeah, I think one of the things you're getting at with template rhetoric, and one of the reasons I really like this chapter is because there's a fine. So there's sort of this this binary perception of social media communication, especially. So when we talk about platforms like Twitter, like um, TikTok now, even Twitch, which is this like gaming site, that either it's just so cool that now we get to do this, or it's so terrible and it oppresses human creativity. And what you're looking at is this classic rhetorical concept of like the constraint, which means anytime you have a a form, whether it's the Twitter 160 characters or whether it's um, just sort of the visually driven media of Instagram, you have both things about it that are going to make new meaning possible. And you have things about it that are going to suppress old meaning. And that's, and there's no good or bad about this. It's just a constraint. and, And it's not it's not any better or worse than the constraint of the print book. It's not better or worse than the constraint of face-to-face communication, right? They're all just enabling and oppressive forms that both enable new meaning and also oppress forms of meaning, like long form, for example. So there's a reason why Trump is the Twitter president and Obama was the Facebook president. And some of that is media just driving that change. And some of it is you couldn't have had Obama or, or, or Trump if you flipped them. And so I think you're really good at, at not valorizing new media as solving a problem like, oh, new media is just going to fix it. But you're also not just saying like, oh, it's so sad that we can't just write old letters with calligraphy pens in the dark with our ink pens, right? You're very much looking at how these templates make new meaning, like they make legitimate new meaning possible, new avenues of access. They allow opinions to get out there that couldn't get out there before, but also they have a lot of consequences. 
but but you're very fair handed in looking at that. And I think that's really refreshing because normally people fall into those binaries and this book is much more fair in its treatment of the media or, mm-hmm. or the, the, the template, as you will, because it's not all media, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's important. Um, and so basically the, the template writer has given rise to a lot of this, but also remediated a lot of these things, too. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, sort of, you know, made them a little bit different. But so the structure of the book, just so that the listeners can sort of follow along here, is that basically I say, you know, here's sort of like the technological reasons why writers have more responsibility afterwards. But uh, then the three data chapters are timing, attention, and management. Um, and basically I make the argument that these three things, the timing, attention, and management form sort of what do writers do after they write? So you finish writing uh, an email, a blog post, a book, or whatever, and there's a whole bunch of stuff you have to do. Um, you have to time your writing. You have to attend your writing. So you have to pay attention to the comments. You have to pay attention to how people are are reacting to it. And you have to sort of manage the comments. You have to manage the writing. You have to think about all those things. And even though in the book, I sort of put those chapters in sort of a linear order, you know, timing came first in the book, um, attention came second, and management came third, they're really sort of more interrelated than that. Um, and so that's sort of the book. Yeah, great. And and I loved this. I mean, I was, I nerded out so hard about this. I was looking up references. I was thinking about examples. I was writing in the margins. So we've got timing, we've got attention and management. Do you want to just go through those three? And maybe you could either pick one example where you can like look at all three or just pick different examples to illustrate each one so that people are getting a sense of, um, of really how, how this is one of those really cool books where everyone listening is going to get what you're talking about because we've all, we, we all, I mean, you all know about timing, attention and management. They're part of everyone's life right now, but you might not have thought about them the way that the book helps you think about them. So I'm really yeah. excited to dig into this. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and some of this is, I think a lot of the processes I described in the book, people already do implicitly. It's more a matter of making, uh, giving people sort of the metacognition about being aware that they're doing a lot of these things. So yeah, I'll take timing first. And, you know, I'm a, there, there's a lot of rhetorical theory in there. So I'm going to sort of put that, that, that scholarly conversation aside for the listening. Um, and I'll go into the more fun examples. So, you know, we think about writing as sort of, at least in my field, you know, you write a book or you publish an article, it comes out in an academic journal, or maybe you even publish something on the internet and then like you're done. And one of the issues of, well, you're not done because you have to think very strategically about when you're going to publish it, when you're going to hit send, when you're going to share it on Facebook. And so one of my participants, her name is Heather Armstrong. Heather Armstrong is the, was formerly the number one mommy blogger on the internet. And she talks a lot about how she thinks about when to share a post on Twitter or Facebook about the time of day. So she'll, she will never share something on like Saturday morning or like Friday night at 6 p.m., right? Those are, those are more like bad times to share something. She'll think about something, about sharing something at lunchtime or think about sharing something at dinner time, right? When people get to work or when people get off of work, right? Redditors always talk about how um, they want to post a lot right when Reddit, quote unquote, the website is getting to work. So a lot of people are getting to work and they log on and they log on to Reddit. And so uh, that's one of those things that sort of uh, is really important is thinking about not just about writing your content. It's about when to share your content, when to publish your content. And there's all sorts of like quirky things that, you know, people I interviewed talked about. So the Amazon reviewers, for instance, talked about trying to write reviews sort of 
around Black Friday because that was a great time to sort of get attention on their writing. So that's sort of the the chapter on on timing in a, in a nutshell. I didn't want to like go into there's there's a lot more details in there about sort of rhetorical theory and stuff like that. Sure. Well, no, I I think that's I think that's a good summary. But I I did want to ask you because again thinking back about this like constraining enabling thing, one of the things you sort of get at in the book is that <laughs> timing both is a formula and is not a formula. So you know like for example the um like I I did a bunch of research on a po- on my podcast and it's like. So I was thinking about this mommy blogger and it's like, oh, mo- the, the, the data shows that most that the best time to release a podcast is going to be right before people leave for work on Tuesday. So, OK, mm-hmm, I'm going to mm-hmm. set all my podcasts to come out Tuesday at 6 a.m. Yep. Um, and uh, but that doesn't instantly mean success because you can also do everything that you're supposed to do and nothing can happen. So timing is really cool because it's very slippery the way you describe it. So certainly there's things you can do to increase the success of timing when we think about the afterlife of these texts, but also it isn't a formula the way that we think of like A plus B equals C, and it's just always going to add up that way. Yeah. And also one more thing about timing that's, I think, really important to pay attention to is that people don't just conceive of timing as sort of a temporal relation, but it's also about spatiality. Um, And sort of this gets a little bit academic for all the listeners out there, but it's kind of cool. So bear with me. So it's not just about timing your writing or your content. It's also about thinking about how your audience encounters that content on a screen. So the easy, the easy examples I point to are news feeds, right? You want your content to be at the top of people's news feeds. So when you have, you know, if you tweet something, it can get buried very easily, especially in sort of the, with the avalanche of content, right? Mm-hmm. So for instance, you don't want to tweet during a presidential debate about your content because it's just going to get buried in the sea of people tweeting their opinions about the, the presidential debate. So there's also a spatial component to timing. And I sort of I remark on this as sort of the the spatiality of timing, Um, especially in terms of because we're in such a screen centric world, understanding that people need to get their content where people see them at the top of screens and particular places on a screen. That's important. Um, And sort of the the fun examples I always share with people is Heather Armstrong, the mommy blogger, uh, journalists, every single journalist I talk to. Uh, multiple redditors I talked to, almost every blogger did something along the lines of they would give their content a quote unquote bump. And I'm doing air quotes there. Um, and so what they would do is um, oftentimes the algorithms that are that are sort of operating on all of these platforms, the more interaction a uh, a post or content gets, the higher it is rated. Um, and so when a content when a post or content is rated higher, it, it rises amongst all the other pieces of content, it rises to the top of news feeds. So for instance, you know, if something gets a bunch of likes right away, that's going to mean, that's going to say to the algorithms, oh, this content is really good, it's going to rise. And so a lot of times, content producers, Redditors, writers, all sorts of these uh, people who are online are trying to get engagement in their, uh, in their content and that leads to a, a spatial sense of timing. And that kind of interaction and wanting to get interaction with their content is actually what leads to the second chapter, which is attention. Yeah, the, the space time is cool. And um, actually, for the nerds out there, if, if you've listened to me before, you know that I love me some Jacques Derrida, who is a 70s French post-structuralist, uh, died in the mid-90s. And he has this concept of espacement. And it's the becoming time of space and the becoming space of time. And anytime you talk about time, 
you're automatically talking about space and vice versa because time always gets spaced and spaced always gets timed. And so Mm -hmm. this is a very cool iteration of that that shows how like really deep esoteric rhetorical concepts are always in our practical lives. And thinking about space and time as separate is not the way to think about digital culture. In fact, I think it really limits you from understanding its richest and its complexity. Yeah. And, and, um, to go into this, the the next chapter is sort yeah. of shows how related these things are because that spatial aspect of timing, so like the space-time aspect of sort of sharing your work, is also bound up and related to how you attend your content. Um, and so this the the next chapter uh, that would be chapter uh, four in the book is about I call it textual timing or excuse me textual attention, and textual yeah. timing mm-hmm. comes out of this desire for space-time uh, interactions. And sort of, you can think of textual tension, the very simple concept of this. I always, I always ask people to, I think people do this in their everyday lives, but it's how do you thank somebody online um, without having to write thank you every time? And so on Facebook or Twitter or on Reddit, people will like your comment as to serve as I read that comment. So on Facebook, you know, if, if you're engaged in this long sort of, back and forth commenting and, you know, you don't want to write thank you every time you might just like someone's comment or you might upvote it on Reddit or, you know, something along the lines of you're giving someone attention. And so that's, that's like the basic form of textual attention. It's, it's an effort on the part of the content producer. It's an effort on the part of the writer or whoever it happens to be to show the audience that they're there, that it's a stand in for the body it's a stand-in for I'm paying attention to you. And that interaction is sort of what leads us back to the timing. But it's also important because that that sense of attention is important to circulating your content, to showing your readers, your audiences that you're actually there, that you're paying attention to what they're saying, you're paying attention to all those comments, that sort of thing. But I think that's how we get from sort of timing to attention, sort of the progression of the book. But more conceptually, it also shows how all of these practices are really sort of a mangle together. Um, right. They can't really be separated because we sort of do them all at the same time. Well, and, and maybe I have a quick comment on that too, just to sort of add a little depth to that based on having read the whole book and there being just a lot of cool stuff in here that I know you're being very sweet to not try to dig into, but I'm, I'm going to dig into a little bit for you. Maybe while I'm doing that, think of like a really good example of this attention thing to share with us. Sure. Okay. So real quick, I just wanted to say about attention. One of the things I think that's that where attention is not just timing is in this concept of like attitude. So the book, some of the examples that I read about the book, and you don't explicitly talk about this, but, but in, in, if you think about your communication online as old school, where timing was sort of up to you. So like you're the God who wrote the book. And so it doesn't matter about timing because everyone's going to read it because the ideas are so good. If you bring that attitude into a digital culture, you don't, you're not engaging and you're not bringing their attention in, right? You're, you're not creating that dialogic atmosphere. And that really does seem to be what's driving a lot of the most popular and effective content today is the sense of like the audience being seen at the same time that they see you. And yet even really young people still talk to me about digital media as if their job is to just put out great stuff at the right time. And the attention is just supposed to automatically come. But I asked them, like, what are you doing to engage? What are you doing to see your audience back the way that you want them to see you? And it's like, well, nothing, because I just post the YouTube videos, and then they're supposed to hop on the comments. I'm like, why would they hop on your comments amidst the millions of other things 
that their attention, right? Why would they choose you over someone else? And it's really shocking to me that even though as consumers of media, they really appreciate that quote, like being seen sort of vibe, they don't think about it as the producer, which I think is really a leftover from some of the deep seated stuff we, we sort of remember as a collective from the hundreds and hundreds of years where putting out content was much more of a one-way kind of thing. Yeah, I actually have a great anecdote that I wish I wish I'd included in the book, but it happened afterwards. Oh, all right, we get premiere new. All right, listen up, new books listeners. This is premiere, never before released content. So talk about seeing your (laughs) audience, right? (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, you know, recently YouTube installed a new feature with the comment section. Um, Where you know the comment section is sort of notoriously bad, but there's a lot of good gems in there. Um, I would probably say like one out of every 10 comments is, is really insightful. Even, I love YouTube comments. I think they are just an underutilized they're, they're rhetorical resource. Yes. Like heart-wrenching and heartbreaking and sort of yep. off topic too. All of that together. But, you know, YouTube created a new functionality where you can see if the, if the, if the video producer replied to a comment. And it's, it's a really cool function because you, can, you now can see, all right, is this youtuber is this video producer actually paying attention to and replying to the comments right so you don't just see that other people are replying but it will actually say like oh like binging with babish replied to so and so binging with babish is a guy who makes cooking videos that i watch and he does and so the idea of responding to your audience and sort of treating them with attention is a way to get more attention but it's also a way to sort of um better understand how being a content producer works in sort of the 21st century, right? Like no one's book succeeds on their own. You have to do certain things in the same way. No one's YouTube video sort of succeeds on its own. No one's blog succeeds on its own. You have to do all of these various. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways you do it is by giving your audience and the audience participation you have, whether it's comments, whether it's responses, whether it's, um, people, you know, sending you emails is like responding to them and responding to them with a certain sort of like, I don't want to say moderated tone, but sort of understanding that they're giving you some of their attention and you have to give them attention back in some way. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yeah, and I really like, I mean, you know, it's real easy to, to shit on the internet. Let's just be honest. Like, it's, it's just like, that's easy. That's like shooting fish in a barrel. But there is a sense in which some of these technologies create a kind of mutual accountability between the producer and the consumer, if if we want to just like oversimplify for right now, that isn't always, I mean, if you think about historically our relationship to politics, I mean, we've been the consumer, we, yes, we vote, but then once the vote's over for four years, we're very much kind of like the spectator. And that's not to say that like putting politicians in the in the content producer seat has had all positive effects. But one of the things it does is there is more of a sense of that mutual accountability being important. And that's something I really appreciate about update culture and something that I think your book treats with both its like its splendor and its misery. Right. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, and this is this is sort of you know, you have you know, in the book I get into sort of some of the fine grain details of it, but every almost every single one of my participants, in fact, I think every single one of my participants said that when you reply to somebody, you want to avoid the word actually. Because actually makes you sound like a jerk. Uh-huh. Because if you if you say it, you in in sort of spoken voice, you can hear the way somebody might say that word. But if you read it, you you're basically engaging in mansplaining. I call it comment splaining. Oh, um, my family calls it lease splaining. So, <laughs> well, it's it, it's a it's a great way to sort of capture this idea of you want to sort of have like a gracious tone almost, but it's not that's not quite the right word because you can still sort of engage in sort of like heated debate. But it's sort of recognizing that I hear what you said. Now I'm going to sort of go ahead and say what I have to say, et cetera. And sort of every single participant in the book said, avoid the word actually when you're replying. That's fascinating. Yeah. And um, and a lot of them also talked about, and not just talked about, but actually in my observations of what they did online, a lot of them used thank you. They probably used too many, too many instances of thank you. Sure. They, they, hey, thanks for writing. And then they would follow up with a question um, or they would look at you know, the type of questions that people are asking. They would look sort of strategically at those questions that people were asking and then decide what questions were to respond to. And so it's yeah. really, it's, you know, attention is a really interesting practice to, to sort of think about. And I think we do this already. You know, if you're engaged, you know, if you're a person on Twitter or if you're on any number of these uh, platforms that you can sort of interact with um, other users, uh, you really think strategically about how to give certain comments, how to give certain uh, people attention and other ones, not so much attention and sort of mm-hmm. it, both an act of absorption and deflection on what you want to do. Right. That's <laughs> fascinating. Yeah. Uh, and again, I cannot, the, the participant interviews in this book are really deep. They're detailed. They're fascinating. And you can emerge with some really good practical considerations as, re- as well as uh, some really nuanced ways of thinking about all of these phenomena like timing that happens. So even though we're glossing over a lot of this for the sake of the interview, the book really, I mean, if what you're thinking right now is like, oh, I wonder what other strategies I could come up with for how I think about attention on the net. Uh, trust me, you're, there's going to be more in this book than you could possibly ever put into practice in a lifetime. It's not a how-to manual, but I do think from the discussions, a lot of different considerations emerge for people. That's, but that's a good reason to go and continue to read the book, even though we've already kind of touched on some of the key concepts. Yeah. And I think, so I think in terms of sort of some of the, the very strategic things that I sort of lay out in the book, um, in terms of like practical use, both to the audience really come in the next chapter. So, you know, I tried sort of making a transition. Okay. If you're thinking about attention, you're also sort of thinking about different sort of management practices. And that's the fifth chapter in the book. And the fifth chapter in the book, I had a peer reviewer called me the digital Aristotle because I was trying to. I love that. Yeah, he 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 said he or she. I don't know who they were, but uh, they basically said to me that I sort of documented all of these various taxonomies of practices that people were engaged in, and so I sort of described different levels of management. So there's sort of macro management, there's meso management, and there's micro management. You know, and you know, just to give people that sort of the basic structure of the chapter and. It comes. This comes from Irvin Goffman's the presentation of self in everyday life and sort of impression management. So that's the that's the that's the general academic theory I draw on for that chapter. But it's it's really interesting because sort of for macro management, you know, people would 
create a set of internal rules that they would obey. And they would also obey sort of the official rules of the particular website, right? So Amazon reviewing has a whole set of rules that people need to engage, need to abide by. And so all my participants really tried engaging in those explicit rules, but then they would also engage in the implicit rules. And all of that was sort of macro management of trying to figure out sort of how to, how do I navigate all of these different audiences and what should I do? But then there's also sort of meso management and meso management involves monitoring comments, growing and curating uh, your audience, as well as your comments and sort of trying to control the conversation a little bit. That's always an organic process of trying to control the conversation. Um, but, you know, and there's examples of these. So when you, when people were trying to monitor um, their audiences, they were thinking about reading the comments. They were trying to decide whether a comment violates a rule um, or not violates. They were trying to sort of think about um, what a healthy conversation for them meant um, and sort of growing and curating conversations meant something along the lines of mediating conflicts between commenters uh, and also developing sort of uh, ad hoc procedures for situations that sort of they didn't think about in their rules. And then controlling conversations is pretty, pretty easy and straightforward. It's sort of removing comments or even commenters from a forum. Um, asking questions was really important to try to sort of, if they had a thread or if other commenters were getting off topic, they would try to pose a question to sort of bring it back. Um, so that's sort of the, the meso stage of uh, management. And then the micro stage is, is pretty simple, right? You might be editing, re-editing posts based on audience feedback. You might be ignoring comments, things like that. But it was sort of all of the very micro decisions. And my goal in presenting this chapter was there's a lot of sort of very detailed, um, on-the-ground practices and things that people do on the internet and with their digital writing that I don't think we normally conceive of as being related to writing. And so, right. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be a writer? And someone was like, well, I think that means reading comments and deciding which comments get posted and which ones don't, you know, 30 years ago, people wouldn't even know what that phrase just meant. But now I think that that's actually very integral to being a writer. And, you know, some of the journalists I talked to even have that explicitly as part of their contract. So I talked to, I talked to a couple of uh, journalists that are in the book, um, and they told me that they wrote for Forbes.com or some, some of these other sort of, you know, more, more well-known publications and in their contract, they would write, you know, a 500 or 750 word post, um, for Forbes or another venue. And then they would have to actually read the comments and decide which ones to respond to. They would have to, in their contract, it said they had to read them and decide what to do with them. Um, and I would have never thought that that would be a thing that writers have to do, but it is now becoming a responsibility that writers need to sort of manage their writing. That makes a lot of sense, actually. And who and right. And if I'm Forbes, I'm not going to I'm going to want these comments responded to and, and sort of um, uh, like managed, like you said, but I'm not going to want to be the one to do it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's, huh. it's a precarious form of labor. Um, you know, I call it sort of, uh, you know, there's there's a level of aspirational branding that people are engaged in, too. Right. Uh, in terms of management. Um, but the, probably the, a couple people have said to me, one of the, the biggest, uh, things that I found was that, um, you know, there's a lot of crap on the internet and there's a lot of sort of misogyny on the internet and the management practices of my participants who identified as women 
were much more in-depth and detailed and fine-grained yes. than for the men. Um, and this is probably because they're the target of vitriol, misogyny, you know, threats of violence and sexual violence. Um, and well, so I also a, think... Oh, go ahead. And so as a result of that, right, I mean, um, one of the things that sort of that was stark and distinct for me as a researcher was women have a much more detailed and well-developed sense of management than men do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I sort of noticed that trend and, and we can talk more because you, you address gender really well, I think here. And it'd be interesting also to see how you could expand this to look at issues of like, um, like, like uh, non-hetero, non-cis folks on the internet as well. But when you're a minoritized individual, you have a stronger sense and you get it, you get it. So what you get at in the book is this rhetorical concept of like what we call ethos or persona, which is that when you're on the internet, really, whenever you're in any kind of communication, I would argue, I think you would too, that um, you're performing a character. You're not being quote unquote yourself because yourself is mm-hmm. like a hodgepodge of billions of characters. And one of the things with um, the immediacy, the, this immediacy of the internet, this perception of immediacy is that you think you're just being you and other people are just being them, but everyone is kind of performing. But I think minoritized people like women often get that they have to perform for different audiences in a way that like traditionally privileged people don't because traditionally their self quote unquote has just kind of been the norm. And that may be why you see just sort of an instinctual sense of impression management that isn't often as it's, it's more common in minoritized people who kind of already get this from history. Yeah. And it's, you know, the, the level of awareness is mm-hmm. more, like there's a level of metacognition that's there yeah. uh, uh, for the, for the um, women participants in the book. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean those, and so th- those are the three, you know, to summarize there, you know, timing attention to management are sort of the three important practices that sort of fall on writers. Um, that I don't think are necessarily associated with sort of um, print or analog writing. Yeah. And, and I did want to, bef- um, before we wrap up this, this last management piece, you do some really cool stuff with this concept of hive mind. And so hive mind or groupthink is often used like derogatorily, which is like, so Reddit, this, this vast forum is just hive mind because everyone there thinks the same, acts the same. And even if they like mob mentality is another word that people use for it. And you do get this sense in the textual management chapter that there is some of that happening, but that there are a lot of people participating that actually nuance that. And one of them is this char- uh, this person um, or character, Porta Rosa, who is the only, you say, the only woman Redditor that you interviewed. And she actually talks about how the, the concept of the hive mind is like doubled because on the one hand, it's like, yeah, maybe there are blah, blah, blah. But on the other hand, like, I'm not sure if it exists. And so having to respond both knowing that there might be a hive mind, but then also that can't be what drives your responses or else you're going to be derogatory, dismissive. Uh, oh, you're just a, you know some other stupid person on the internet. And you also don't acknowledge that like, you're also a stupid person on the internet in that case, because you're also yeah. on Reddit. <laughs> so do you want to yeah. talk a little bit about that hive mind phenomenon? Because it was very cool. Yeah. So the hive mind is sort of a concept of groupthink, which is, you know, pretty pretty standard sort of sociological phenomenon of sort of, you know, you know, for lack of a better word, the way a lot of people think about something. Um, and you know, the, the hive mind has become this term that Reddit, that Redditors use very frequently to describe sort of the way Reddit quote unquote, um, thinks about something. So, um, there might be sort of a, a particular type of thing that most people think Redditors hold or a type of opinion that most Redditors have, something along those lines. 
Um, and, you know, it, it happens. People sort of attribute this to, to Twitter as well and Facebook as well. And through these large platforms, a lot of sort of hive mind type of thinking comes into play. Um, and it's really interesting because you have to both think of the hive mind as something you need to manage and something you need to respond to. But it's also something you need to resist. So it's it's a paradox in trying to think about it. And it sort of is what undergirds the management. Like, how do you manage the hive mind? Um, what kinds of practices do you need to do in order to contend with a large group of people who have a particular belief about something? Well, and I think this is just so crucial. And one of the things that, so when people ask me what I do as a rhetorician, I have a very simple answer, which is I'm all about deconstructing cliches. Like if I see a cliche, I want to call it out and I want to talk about it, even if it's a cliche that I want to be true. And hive mind, I think is a cliche in the sense that like, I'm quite sure that hive minding happens, that groupthink happens, that people norm, that mob, I mean, there's no doubt that it happens. But if you've written something on the internet, for example, and you have a choice between responding to how people feel about that or think about that and just dismissing everyone as hive mind, which one is more productive? And it's mm-hmm. definitely not just being like, oh, well, you're just another Redditor, YouTuber, conservative, whatever, who doesn't get it. Whether or not it's true is irrelevant. <laughs> like you can, I, I, There are sociological studies to prove groupthink out the wazoo, but when you're thinking about putting something on the internet to to lead how people think about a challenge or a problem or an issue, if that's really what you're there for and not just to generate controversy or like feel good about your righteousness, then then you can't think about the people responding to you as just another one of those blah, 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 unless your only goal is to just hear yourself think out loud and get people to agree with you. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes was from a, a Redditor um, called Stickly Man. Um, Stick- yeah, Stickly, Stickly Man is sort of the the one of the people that participate with this Portarosa conversation. And for those who are going to pick up the book, this is around page one twenty, and this is a great conversation. I wish we had time to just read the whole thing, but I will leave that to the the internet world to do when they feel like it. Yeah, and uh, Stickly Man is uh, really quite funny because he was sort of this this book came out of my dissertation, um, and he he was a great interview. First off, he was fun and engaging. Um, and he has my favorite quote from the book where he said, you know, the hive mind is probably terrible and awful and, and also it's right a lot of the time. Um, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that paradox of sort of like, what, what is this hive mind? And it's like you both, a lot of people said like the hive mind didn't exist, but then also said like, I write to the hive mind or I think about the hive mind. And sure. so, it's this consistent ability to like, you know, if, if you're just sending stuff out on the internet, you have to in some way conceive, conceive of the hive mind as something, right? You have to conceive of like the audience in some way. And so it's a construct in a lot of ways for people to grasp onto that they're kind of using. Um, but like more specifically, you know, uh, Stickly Man had a very sort of uh, firm sense of the hive mind. Um, because he often talked about how Reddit would change in the summertime and how Reddit became sort of a bunch of angsty teenagers in the summertime. Um, but during the school year, it sort of had a different vibe to it. And so, he, he, you know, that's a version of hive minding it conceptually, right? He had sort of conceived of how Reddit changes over the course of the, the school year and how it had a, a quali- qualitatively different shape in his mind during the summertime than the rest of the year. Yeah, he has this hilarious comment about 
<laughs> and you make this joke. Uh, you kind of ask him, um, like, Reddit loves to talk about Reddit? And he's like, yeah, Reddit loves to reference itself. And he he makes this really brilliant observation that's like, so one of the things Redditors love to do is talk about how much smarter they are than every other social media site like Facebook. And yet yeah. they constantly get obsessed with talking about putting people in jail who don't use their turn signal. Mm-hmm. And it's so ironic. It's very ironic in the, in the actual, very like rhetorical sense of the word, because you have these people who are simultaneously thinking of themselves as smarter and better than everyone else. And yet they are still talking about traffic laws, which is perhaps like other than the weather, one of the most mundane things that people talk about when they are like making small talk. And so they're at once performing being better than and also being exactly like everyone else. And I think that's a great example of just like what that hive mind looks like. And then as a, as a, as a, as a rhetorician, right? Stickly man has the choice. Do I want to focus on how they think they're smarter than everyone else? Do I want to focus on how they're not really smarter than everyone else? How do I want to navigate that? But what's important is he sees it as a choice. He doesn't just dismiss it as, oh, look at these hypocrites. Because I'll tell you, once you, once you call someone a hypocrite, you have stopped being able to engage them because you've already decided that you're that you're just going to see their contradiction and just act as if you're not a hypocrite yourself. And so I love this part of the book. I mean, I reread it like three times. It was really fascinating. The depth without being boring. I mean, as far as like, and I'm not usually like an interview person. I don't like to read people who do studies of interviews necessarily, but this one I really couldn't stop reading until I finished the chapter. Thank you. It's, you I'm glad you mentioned the joke because there's quite it's an academic book, right? I, I, you know, I, I wrote this for multiple reasons, one of which was like for my job and for tenure. Um, but there's a lot of jokes that are sort of, I crack throughout the book. Um, and I don't want people to sort of, um, you know, it is a serious academic book, but it's also, I'm trying to sort of, um, you know, sort of, uh, like a wink and a nod at the rest of the audience. Um, because like, for instance, uh, in, in one of them, so there's a big long chapter about care, um, about interview descriptions and people who I interviewed. And, you know, one of my redditors was like, I'm a Pisces. And so I included that in his bio that he's a Pisces, even though it has nothing to do with anything in the book. Um, just because it's sort of the sort of captures the humor and there's a lot of humor and grace that my participants gave to me as they were sort of talking about all this chaotic internet stuff. Yeah, no, the, the the writing is great. I mean, I, I don't abide by the serious academics can't be funny or use contractions or whatever. Like, it's all about the depth of the idea and how well the idea is presented. And beyond that, everything else to me is just a style choice based on who you want, who you think is picking up your book to read it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and you, I think, nail, nailed it on the head, right? It's, it's, it's nuanced. It's deep descriptive interviews, which are really fascinating. It's funny. Uh, it's insightful and it merges rhetorical theory with kind of what we'd call like entrepreneurial or brand management theory in a way that makes, that doesn't dumb down rhetoric. It makes it, I think, more relatable because more people are used to thinking about life in brand management terms now, in part because rhetoricians have not gotten into the public eye to give our framework to people. So other people have done that work instead with their own frameworks. And you're you're merging all of that in a book that I I think is really going to be on the forefront of the new way we need to see academic work being done, which is with a mind to someone wanting to read it, who is not just obsessed with the, te- with the terminology, but actually wants to get at new ideas. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. There's so in the, at the end of uh, the management chapter, I talk about aspirational branding um, and that a lot of my participants are engaged in, you know, they, they have attention, but they're trying to get more of it and they're trying to sort of, they're trying to hack it. So, quote unquote, you know, to be successful and to 
make their mm-hmm. uh, economically viable because a lot of them are in precarious positions, right? They're they don't make money off of their uh, their work or they make very little. So the journal, a lot of the journalists I talked to, sort of were sort of contract workers who would you know maybe be contracted to write a piece here and there, but they weren't full time employees. And so a lot of the management practices that I talk about in the book are um, what I call aspirational practices. Um, these are what people are trying to are doing in order to try to get known or to try to get better known. Um, and so in that sense, I could see at some point myself writing a, a, like a, a, like a popular press book version of this to try to talk about the things you need to do um, in order to sort of grow and develop an audience. Um, mm-hmm. I think a lot of these practices are, are fairly transparent and ethical, right? No one's sort of, uh, you know, trolling anyone else. Um, so, but I, I think that, that aspect is really important because I think for the listeners, I think there's a lot of things in the book that are useful for people, not just in an academic sense, but in a sense like if you want to go start your own blog, here are some interesting things that people do that you might not consider to be part of writing a blog. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my colleagues here at, at Illinois actually bought a copy of the book for his daughter who's trying to start a blog. Oh, yeah. Well, and, you know, and also from an academic perspective, I really like how it takes some of these rhetorical concepts that we have only barely touched on. We didn't even talk about like the different types of timing, Kairos, Kronos, all of that. That's but that's throughout the book. But it makes them it take they take on a new sheen by by merging them with some of these things that are happening across Internet culture and then also within brand management. And so that's not to say that anyone wanting to learn more about rhetorical concepts couldn't pick up this book. And really, I think, learn about some really fascinating rhetorical concepts in, in new, updated, digitally savvy ways. Yeah. 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 Well, like I said, great book. Do you want to, um, so we haven't even touched on your stuff on ethics, your stuff on pedagogy. Do you want to chat about anything that's sort of in the, the the latter third of the book before we wrap? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I'll just, I'll just you know, summarize it for listeners. Um, so, the, you know, there's a couple of chapters that are sort of... Um, about pedagogy because I'm, I'm a teacher. And so trying to talk about some of the, the practices that, you know, teaching some of this stuff involves. And uh, one of the main concepts that I come across in the last uh, third of the book is about inadvertent attention. And, you know, what happens if you go viral and get attention from people you don't want? Um, so trolls or something along those lines. Um, and I actually talk about the curious case of Amanda Gailey, who wrote an Amazon review and then received death threats because she reviewed a cell phone case that was made by Magpool and Magpool it makes guns. And so she wrote a review of the cell phone case saying the manufacturer of this is Magpool. Magpool feeds on death. Don't buy this. Um, and a bunch of people hated this review because she was not making a comment about the actual cell phone case, but about the producer of the cell phone case. And her argument was that this this review is legitimate because she's criticizing the manufacturer. And when she had initially bought the cell phone case, she didn't know that it was actually Magpul, the manufacturer had 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 created it. So she and she's very uh, anti-gun and wanted to make sure that um, other consumers knew this. Um, and it, you know, people found out about this review. Um, a couple of like sort of conservative websites spotlighted this review and then um, spotlighted her because her name was on this um, was on the review. And so this like two line review got like 2000 down votes or unhelpfulness votes at Amazon. And then a bunch of people covered it 
and really started coming after her online. And she fought back. She's, she, you know, she said, don't ever go silent when the trolls are trying to get you down, sort of fight back against them. And sort of, I, I talk about this example of her sort of fighting back and dealing with what I call inadvertent attention, sort of inadvertently going viral, you know. And I think this position, I'm, I'm sure people have, a lot of people have sort of gone inadvertently viral, perhaps mistakenly, you know, um, at, at bad times in their lives or something like that. Yeah tweeted something late at night or whatever. And I think there are a lot of practices that you could think about to sort of capture that. But one of the, one of the main practices um, I highlight with Amanda Gailey's case is that if you're being trolled, um, a lot of people used to say sort of don't feed the trolls, but I think, mm-hmm. I think it's, it's better to fight back against the trolls rather than sort of ignore the comments. Well, yeah. And again, this is one of those issues where it's so thorny. For example, for example, I think about, um, I think about, especially with like deleting content. So on the one hand, right, we, we are happy that you can't edit a tweet. Um, that, because then you, if you say something, you can't go back and like repost it, but you can edit it in other forums. But then I don't know if you're part of this communication scholars for social change group, but it's a huge group of academics in the communication field who are sort of like what you would call more scholar activists. Uh, and the the group rules were recently revised so that you can't delete a comment if it starts to create controversy, mm-hmm. which I'm very torn about because, you know, sometimes I posted something a couple years ago because I bought new pronoun buttons. So pronoun buttons are just the, for people that don't know, are just the buttons you wear that say like, I use she pronouns or I use they pronouns or I use ask me pronouns, right? And mm-hmm. I just... um made a comment about how people wanted a button from my office, like, come on by, I'll give it to you. And a couple other things about pronouns. And somebody got on there and was like really pissed at me and writing all these things. And I, I, I sort of, I saw their point. So I just was like, Oh, I really, I totally understand where you're coming from. I'm coming from this angle. I think we're both right. I think it's just kind of a choice. And they were like, no, no, it's not a choice, blah, 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 blah. blah. And I just deleted the thread because I had accidentally caused a controversy about something I frankly didn't want to, I didn't want it to, to get fed. Right. Um, but now I'm in a group where it's like, okay, well, if that happens, it's unethical to delete the thread. And I think this is just a really good case where it's so hard to know what the right response is. But at the end of the day, yes, I, I do think feeding the trolls is always the thing we want to avoid. And that's why in some cases, I think deleting the thread is the best move because then other people who only want to hop on because there's controversy don't have the opportunity. But on the other hand, then it's like, oh, but but then you've deleted something that maybe was was productive to try to save your ass. So I thought this chapter was really fascinating in terms of talking about like feed the, the feeding the trolls concept. Yeah, it was, it was a, it was an interesting, it was an interesting chapter to write. Um, because I, I, uh, Amanda was sort of a, a, an interesting get for me. Uh, she came from a snowball sample, um, from another one of my participants. And so, um, you know, she had this story sort of already, um, happened to her and sort of as, as I interviewed over the course of, you know, 2015 to 2018, um, you know, she sort of, uh, learned how to sort of better battle the trolls, so to speak. Um, and one, you know, one, you know, she told me at one point Fox news had her on because she's, she's uh-huh. a faculty member at uh, Nebraska. And so, um, mm-hmm. they had her on thinking she was sort of going to be this timid professor and she was like fiery and battled back again. <laughs> and like, she didn't, and she didn't get any blowback from the, from it because she sort of like owned being an anti-gun activist as opposed to like, sort of like hedging or something like that. And they were, and 
you know, didn't land, so to speak. I think they were kind of set her up and she fought back and was successful. Yeah, I think people underestimate how often professors get trolled by students. My students troll me in class all the time. And I've learned that you lean in. You know, you don't fight it. You lean in and you're like, hey, you know, I validate that a lot of what you're saying is actually kind of true. Or that I get where you're coming from because you're upset about it. I mean, right? And and this is not a skill. This is one of the... Un- this is why the internet culture is cool because if we could harness it right, it would be a cool opportunity to teach people how to engage in productive disagreement. Mm-hmm, yeah. The Amanda story is very fascinating. I really enjoyed I because um, she's quoted in a couple of spots and I thought she was a really... Yeah. So like you said, she was a good get. I totally agree with that. Yeah. I got, I got a couple other good gets in the... You know, I got like... Um, you know, the, this, the, the top three of the top five, um, Redditors in terms of comment karma on the, on, on Reddit, mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, are internet famous and I'm using that in air quotes, you know, like they're well known in their particular internet circles. Right. Um, but the, the thing I also wanted to do, I know we're close to the end here, but, um, the, the book is available from Utah State University Press. It's a it's an imprint of University of Colorado. So it's kind of the same. Oh, okay. Thank you for correcting me. Sorry, I just yeah, read the first line of the... It's not, it's not a big deal. Um, it's kind of the same press. But um, the press actually has a coupon. It's, uh, uh, for, it's uh, C's. It's uh, four C's. So um, four letter C's in a row. With, with so C-C-C-C. C-C-C-C. Okay. The number and then VB for virtual booth. And the press is putting on because the press was having a conference and the conference was canceled. Um, and the press offers discounts at the conference. So they're offering a digital discount on the book at 60% off with free shipping, which means the book is only $26. Um, that's awesome. And so at 60% off, you know, that's what $11 free shipping for the book, um, which is pretty cheap to begin with for an academic monograph. Yeah. Uh, but with the discount, it's, you know, it's cheaper than most new novels. Yeah. For $11, this book is basically free as far as I'm concerned. Like, yeah. There's that much, there's that, there's that much good stuff in it. And to piggyback on that, I say this every time we sign off from an interview, but university presses like, I apologize again, Utah State University Press are really valuable because they help support the New Books Network. And also they do the kind of, I think, um, really careful editing and quality management of these books that you don't often get with what we call like a trade public um, trade paperback. Mm -hmm. And so for those of you that maybe are not interested necessarily in picking up John's book, Update Culture and the Afterlife of Digital Writing, you can still, especially at this price, grab a hard copy, donate it to your local library. And then anyone thinking about starting a blog or wanting to learn more about rhetoric and digital oratory or whatever it is that, that this book covers so many topics, it'll be right there on the shelves. And that's a great thing you can do if you've enjoyed the work and you like what we do here and you want to support the book, but maybe you don't necessarily want a personal copy. And as um, John mentioned, if you know somebody trying to get into the digital game, this is a great um, present for 11 bucks. I mean, <laughs> we can't really go wrong. So I'm glad you shared that with us. That's a very awesome opportunity. Cool. Yeah, I made my poor university pay full price for this book for our library, so I'll have to call them and see if they can if they can get the coupon code. Hmm. Well, thanks for having me, Lee. Yeah, it's wonderful. And um, if people want to engage with you or learn more or learn more about you, is there anywhere they can go? Or if they want to troll you, I guess we'll see how good you are now that you've written yeah. this book. Yeah, come come troll me at uh. So my my Twitter handle is at mere sophistry, um, and that's spelled M E R E. S-O-P-H-I-S-T-R, sophistry. That's a great great handle. Yeah, 
I'm glad I chose it. I'm glad I got it. There actually was a podcast for a while called Mirror Sophistry, which was by a grad student, Mayor, I can't remember her last name. Um, yeah, there was, she there was do a it. podcast. Um, I don't think she, Mary Henningrew. Yeah, she doesn't do it anymore. She did it, I think, like right at right at the undergrad school or right when she got out. But um, it was really fun. But it's unfortunately yeah. it's still it's still around. So Mira Sophistry, the podcast. Uh, but it's like a great handle for Twitter. Yeah. All right, Lee. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks again, John. We'll talk soon. Okay. Bye. All right. Bye.